Well, I'm sorry I about ran away with that first song. A little bit too excited. Get to going so fast I realize, hey, wait, everybody else is in a different time signature. I probably should slow down. Sorry for that. He's right. Uh, I, I won't tell you my whole testimony tonight, but um, I, I grew up as a good Methodist boy in uh, little tiny Healy, Kansas. Um, and I had no idea what the gospel was, to be quite frank. Um, and I think western Kansas, to be quite frank, is a land that is as dry spiritually as it is physically. I think there are a lot of churches, and people go to those churches because they know that's the right thing to do, and yet many of them have no idea what the gospel is. They are functionally, biblically illiterate. And when I got born again at 19, I can remember hearing the word gospel for the first time. I'd been in church my whole life, and that was the first time I'd ever even heard the word gospel. And um, for, forgive me, this is an issue that's close to my heart because I've had a lot of conversations with my own family members. I, I know a lot of people in this area that I love deeply. And, uh, and so when, and when Dexter told me that he was looking at a little church in St. Francis, Kansas, I was like, Go! said, don't you want to pray about it? I was like, I've been praying for 20 years, son. Go. Fields are white for harvest. Go. And, uh, and I think you probably find the same thing with your neighbors. You probably find a lot of people who, they want to live good lives. They want to be hardworking, good people and have no idea what the gospel is. And I was the same way. And so I got born again at 19 after, uh, I was an alcoholic actually by that time. And, and I was in a lot of other things that were not good roads, and uh, I'm certain had the Lord not saved me, I would have been in a ditch dead somewhere probably within five years or so, and yet the Lord had mercy, and he reached down and saved me, and I went on a football scholarship to a tiny little Division II school down in Oklahoma, and uh, the first, I got saved the first night I was in Oklahoma, so I tell everybody Oklahoma's God's country. And that's why. And so, of course, my first day on the team, I'm telling everybody about Jesus. He's changed my life. I'd been born again, I think, maybe 48 hours at our first practice. And so by the third day, they're all calling me Apostle Paul. And one of the boys like, man, you're a preacher's kid, ain't you? You a pre- Just tell us you're a preacher's kid. <laughs> if you saw the family I came from, this would not be a question in your mind, you know. But that was because Jesus had radically changed my life. And, uh, and immediately, because I was, a, I was always a science nerd, I, I love everything about it. I love looking through telescopes, I love looking through microscopes. In fact, I was really disappointed to see here in western Kansas, you know, give me a home where the buffaloes roam, you know, where the, where the skies are not cloudy all day. They're cloudy. I brought my big telescope. And of course, it's cloudy, the one day, you know. But I was always a science nerd, but then of course, as soon as I get into my science classes, I'm bombarded with... Lots of different things about the universe being billions of years old and aren't people, you know, just evolved from ape-like ancestors and you know the whole gamut. You've heard it all if you've, you know, grew up in a public school or went to a public school or went to college or whatever. And so immediately uh, I began just looking for resources. You got to remember at that point in time, there weren't the resources that there are today. You couldn't just go Google it. You couldn't go find you know, the website. It was, you're just reaching out to everybody that you can, and lo and behold, the Lord sends Ronnie Qualls into my life, and he says, hey, I got these DVDs. I think you should watch them, and they were an apologist. If you're not aware of the term, apologetics is defending the faith, giving a reasoned defense for the faith, and so he passes them on to me, and it was like, it was like water on a thirsty, thirsty soul, you know. It just I drank him up, and I was going back to him all the time. Hey, I watched this one 14 times. You know, what's the next one? You know, that kind of deal. And so I ended up spending my undergraduate days, I probably spent as much time learning about the arguments for and against atheism and agnosticism and all of that stuff as I did my biology and chemistry studies. So uh, by the time I got out, why that was what I wanted to do, I was talking to people all the time. And so I was, by that time, I'd become a youth pastor and we had at least one month a, a year where the whole month, that's all we did was apologetics and take questions and the kids all bring their 
atheist friends, and so you're having these debates, and it was, in my mind, it was great. I learned a lot, and so I say that to say this. Now I've been teaching high school and college-level science for not quite 20 years now, and uh, so in my mind, it's a way that I can take what the Lord has, has equipped me with uniquely and be able to share it with you. What I want you to get when we're all done, when all of this is said and done, listen, you will not have all the answers. You will not. Nobody will. Okay? I don't care that you know all the answers. What I care about is that you know there are answers. Does that make sense? I want you to know that there are answers to questions of the faith. And we're going to talk about some of those over the next couple of days. So, let's get into this. I, I, was t- I went to a uh, Answers in Genesis. You've heard Answers in Genesis, maybe. They had a big conference for speakers, and so I went, and uh, they told us you're supposed to put all of your you know, awards and stuff on your first slide to make you more credible. I don't, I don't think it really works. I've got to be honest with you. So, but there it is, in case you needed it. Okay, let's, let's talk about this. Astronomy and the Bible. Before we get too far into this tonight, I actually want you to turn with me to a place. I, I want to get something across before we really get into what I want to get to. Does that make sense? I've got to put a little context in here, okay? We'll see if we can... Hey, look at that. Get, get with me. Go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 18. Romans chapter 1. I want to get an issue settled in your mind. I want to get it established and out of the way so that I can get to what I really want to get to. But I have to get to this first. And here's what I want to get to. Here's what I'm going to bring to you. I don't want you to go on a fool's errand. You heard that term before? What's a fool's errand? Well, you know, it's like, it's like when you take your kids snipe hunting. All right? Ah, we're going to go out snipe hunting. Look, here's, here's the bag. Go out there, come back in an hour, let me know if you've got... You're just trying to get rid of them. It's a futile effort. Well, in apologetics, the same thing can happen. You see, the agnostic, the atheist, the secular person wants you to have to answer 100,000 questions. They're not looking for truth. They're not looking for knowledge. No, they're looking for justification for their sinful lifestyle. People are not at odds with God because they don't have enough evidence. That's nonsense. And they'll tell you that. I told people that. No, if I just had more evidence, baloney. I have actually had that conversation multiple times. I'll go and talk at colleges, a lot of FCA groups and stuff. And uh, and I'll ask them. I'll say, well, now are you serious? Are you genuine in your search for truth? Are you really searching for, oh, I'm searching for truth. Are you? And you're sincere in that search, are you? Oh, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm, oh, yeah. Okay, good. So if you ask me a question and I answer it, you will become a Christian, right? Well, I didn't say that. Well, no, of course not, because you're not really looking for truth. You're looking for a way to suppress the truth so that you can go on living your wicked or bitter lifestyle. There are some well-intentioned but misguided Christians out there who really think that their atheist, agnostic, whatever, secular neighbor is going to be won over if they could just find the right evidence or, or they could find the way to put it. Man, if I could just figure out a way, if I just had enough evidence or the right evidence, they would, they would become a Christian. And a lot of secular people like to style themselves that way. They like to style themselves as they're just too deep of a thinker to, to be able to accept a notion that God made all of this. Well, I'm too smart for that. Oh, yes, you are. You're so smart that you believe nothing created everything. And then that everything exploded, but that everything that exploded didn't explode fast enough, so everything that exploded had to explode again, which is called inflation theory, and then that started spinning from where we don't know, the energy came from where we don't know, the spin, which is conservation of angular momentum, came from where we don't know, but that's what I believe, because that's scientific. That is not science. That's atheist philosophy wearing the garb of science. It's not science. And we are often, because we're Christians, we're often charitable enough to accept their pseudo-intellectual rebellion against God. In our minds, if we could just get the right evidence, they'd finally come to the faith. And that's probably just a simple case of theological naivete uh, mixed with maybe well-intentioned Christian charity. But the truth of the matter is that is not what keeps people away from Christ. 
Maybe you've been listening to a little too much William Lane Craig. I like to thump on him. And not reading our Bibles enough, I, my master's thesis, half of it was that guy, so I can't help it. We, we are at crossing over the swords. Anyway, whatever the case, we need to dispel this myth. And the way we're going to dispel it is by looking at what God's Word has to say on the matter. What is the final authority on every matter of life and faith? God's Word. We're going to look at what God's Word says in the matter. Now listen, I love science. I love telescopes. I love microscopes. I love, I cannot help, but I'm always running experiments. I can't just have a garden. I have to experiment with it, right? Everything. But listen, you can learn more about God in an afternoon with the scripture than you can a lifetime in a microscope. The physicist, the biologist, the chemist does not have the upper hand on theology and metaphysics and philosophy to the Christian. You do, because you have the word of an unerring God. Let's go there. Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Does that say they were looking for the truth? Oh, I really want to know the truth. Do you? No, it says they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The truth scares them. If I accept the truth that God is there and he's real and he's the boss, that means I'm going to have to change my lifestyle. And I'll tell you right now, before I became a Christian, that was not something I really wanted to think about. Well, I want to be, I want to be free to go do what I want to, to go drink with who I want, to go sleep around, to go do whatever, I'm the boss of me. Well, yeah, that's the problem. You have a darkened heart that wants to sin. And that is actually affecting your search for truth. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Let's go on. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Oh, God didn't show it to them? He's been a bit too fuzzy? I just don't know. I just don't know God because I don't have enough evidence. That's not true at all. What can be known about... The Scripture says what can be known about God is plain to them. He's not hidden himself. God did not hide himself. Your sin has separated you from God. He hasn't hidden himself. He's put himself on display in creation. It is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God just didn't show me enough evidence. Yes, he did. Not only has he shown you enough evidence, he promises he will hold you accountable for it. Has he refused to show himself to the unbeliever? Not at all. No, the unbeliever has refused to accept what's plainly been shown. That's the problem. Let's see if I can go back here. Can you go back one for me? I'm having troubles. Boop. Maybe, maybe. Here we go. For his in, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, there's never been a time where people did not know that God existed, that he was real, that he was the boss, that he would hold them accountable. Have they been clearly perceived? In the things that have been made, so that they, that would be unbelievers, are without excuse. Friend, you will never get in front of the Lord one day on Judgment Day and say, oh, if you would have just given me more evidence, I would have believed. Baloney. You had plenty of evidence. You chose not to believe because you're in rebellion against God. You have a hard heart. The problem is not the evidence. The problem is the heart's posture of the unbeliever. They're not unbelievers because they don't have enough evidence. They're unbelievers because they have a heart that's at war against God. They have a heart that's in rebellion to the king, just like I was, just like you were before Christ. Go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll start at verse 17. Book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 17. Look at what Paul says. Look at how he piles up these statements. Four seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them. They're ignorant? What does it mean to be ignorant? Well, it means either to be without knowledge, or you could kind of say to be dumb on purpose. Have you met that? Now listen, I teach high school. I've met many parents who are ignorant on purpose. My Tommy wouldn't do that. Now they know better than that. But they'll tell you, the teacher, oh no, he wouldn't do that. My Tommy wouldn't steal anything out of the locker. No, he would not. He wouldn't steal stuff out of lockers. Meanwhile, she won't leave her purse in the room with little Tommy because she knows he'll steal the money out of it. She is ignorant on purpose. And unbelievers will try to play that little game with God. And God is saying, I won't play. You're going to be held accountable because I know better. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. What's it from? Due to their hardness of heart. Does that say that they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because they just don't have enough evidence? No, it does not. Due to their hardness of heart. Listen to me. All the evidence in the world will not convince a hard heart. It won't. Please trust me. I've been doing this for more than 20 years now. I can promise you. All the evidence in the world will not convince a hard heart. I have literally sat at tables with college students, and they'll ask question after question, and somehow the Lord had just had it where I was studying that exact thing the week before, and I'm just shooting them down. Man, I'm shooting down every question. Do you think at the end of that the kid goes, I just got to repent and trust Jesus? No. They get mad sometimes. They get angry. They huff off. Or they just roll it off. Whatever. 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 And they leave. No, all the evidence in the world won't convince a hard heart. And here's why I'm telling you that. I think some, sometimes we can get the notion that, well, I don't want to go talk to my neighbor because they've got all these questions and I don't have the answers and I don't know what to do about it. I don't want to be seen as a dummy, so I'll just leave them alone. No. You answering all their questions wasn't what was going to save them to start with. The problem is a lot of times we're really good Baptists. You know what really good Baptists do, especially in western Kansas? Really good Baptists are people who are ready to work. Give us a task. Show me something I can do. I'll do it. Awesome. Let's start by praying for them. Whoa, hold on here. How much prayer are we talking? Because, you know, that gets in the way of my work. You know, the stuff I really should be doing. Well, if you want your, your neighbor to be born again, it's going to start in prayer. Because unless the Lord builds that house... They labor in vain who build it. If you don't pray for that neighbor of yours, that's where it starts. It doesn't start with answering the questions and the arguments and bringing them to this seminar or whatever. It starts with praying for God to move on their heart. Because unless God softens their heart, unless he opens their blinded eyes, all the evidence in the world will not change them. How do you know, preacher? Have you read about Pharaoh? It's a lot of evidence one guy saw. Did it change him? How about the unbelievers, the unbelieving children of Israel when they came out of the wilderness? They saw all that stuff too. And they're going, don't you remember the leaks we had? Man, oh, it was such good food. Let's just go back. They had hard hearts. Listen, all the evidence in the world won't convince a hard heart. Your work toward the salvation of your neighbor starts in prayer for them consistent prayer for them, which we don't like to do. And I'll tell you right now, I'm the same way. That's where it starts. Unless the Lord works in their heart, all the evidence in the world will not save them. Okay? All right, now we've got that. Sorry, I'm going to have to get some water. <clears throat> now that we got that. Now, I say all that to say, now, now I'm about to show you evidence. What? I thought you just said evidence doesn't save nobody. You're right, it doesn't. It's not for the unbeliever, it's for you, the believer. When a person gets born again, you know what happens? They still have their old worldview. There's two stances, there's two really ways that people's minds work. One, the unbelieving heart, which is not really an unbelieving heart. That's a really bad way to put that. We should just say the rebellious heart, but whatever. You know what I'm talking about, and I'll just continue to use that term loosely. The unbelieving heart basically says... I refuse to believe it. It cannot be true. Well, what happens when that person gets born again? Like me. 
The science nerd that's had all the science classes and heard all about billions of years and evolution and Darwin and all that stuff, what happens when you get born again? Now the heart says, wait, I believe God's word, but how can it be? <laughs> that's what this is for. That's what this is for. At the end of all of this, all of this stuff that I tell you, I hope you will go away much encouraged with your faith bolstered, ready to go do the work. Does that make sense? It is for you. Okay, let's move on. All right, let's get to the stuff I really want to get to here. Anybody ever got to go see this? It's pretty impressive. Me too. Standing out among the Black Hills. Man, I hope this doesn't... If I, is this sacrilege if I put this here? We had one of these in a little Methodist church I grew up in. I, I know you couldn't... It was like the top of the refrigerator. Don't you put stuff up there that's just for mama, you know, so I'm asking. Okay. Standing out among the Black Hills of South Dakota is a granite mountain. Contains the busts of four of the great U.S. presidents, right? Mount Rushmore. Who we got? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson... Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Those faces are six stories high apiece. Each eyeball is 11 foot wide. At that scale, which is about 78 times larger than normal, if each president were to stand out of the rock face, if you had the whole thing, they would be roughly 465 feet tall. The entire body was carved out. It's a big, big carving. Now imagine you and I, we go out there, we come up to this thing, and you're like, wow, look at this. This is incredible. Think about how long it took the designers, man. Think about all these sculptors and the strategy that they had to go about. And I start scoffing. What? Yeah, don't you think? <laughs> no! Are you really that much of an... Do you really actually think this was designed? No! You're an idiot! This happened over millions of years. There was lots of erosion, wind erosion, fluvial, you know, water erosion. That's what happened. And slowly, naturally, now it was, I, I grant you, it's a very, very slim chance this would happen. It's not very often, but look at that. By no answer, by no matter of any designer or sculptor, natural processes over millions of years actually did, in fact, carve the faces on that mountain. Imagine that. Imagine me mocking you because you dared to postulate that it took a designer, a creator, to make this. You see, that's where a lot of Christians find themselves. Well, let's talk about the universe and how it was so intricately designed. And their friend goes, what? You believe it's designed? Uh, yeah, yes, I do. Yes. I have had somebody do that, by the way, in a talk. And I said, yes, I do. And if you'll give me your evidence for it not being designed... I'll, I'll match with you. It's incredible. It's, it's just like when people get really mad about, they'll ask me, like, you believe Noah's flood is true? Yes. Well, it can't be true. Why? I literally, I asked that lady, I was at a church this past Sunday, uh, talking with a, a group, and a, a lady says, wait, you believe that, that Noah's ark actually really did, like the whole flood like, like really did happen? I said, yes. She says, really? I said, yeah, why shouldn't I? Well, I don't know, but it's, it just seems crazy. Why? Well, well, all those animals couldn't fit in that ark. Oh, okay, well, how many animals was it? Well, I don't know, but they couldn't fit, okay? The ark was too small. Oh, well, how big was the ark? Well, I don't know, but all those animals couldn't fit. Oh, okay, so a, a number of animals that you don't know can't fit inside a nondescript boat that you can't tell me the size of. This is perfect law. The logic is solid. That's the same way that we find ourselves as Christians when we're talking about the universe. Now listen, I want to give you some evidence. It will not convince the hardened heart. But it is still evidence that God holds us accountable to nonetheless. Let me give you some evidence about how God made this incredible universe that he made. It is his universe. He does, it's not ours. Just like it's his world. It is not our world. It's Christ's world. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's his world. We're just occupying until he comes again. I, I want to push the down button. It is not connected. That will not work. Here's our Milky Way on a clear night. I think it's an incredible picture. We sit side on in that Milky Way galaxy. When a Christian looks up at the stars, he sees a breathtaking picture of God's glory in creation. 
We want to fall down on our knees and sing the doxology. In fact, that's what every person should do when they see God's creation. They should fall down and say, praise God, to whom all blessings flow. They should give thanks. And yet the scripture says, no, instead of that, their futile thoughts were darkened. Why? Because they were not grateful. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. They were not grateful. And because of that, their heart was darkened. We see the fingerprint of God in the night sky. We see the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and they witness of God's incredible design, his power, his grace, his majesty, his unparalleled eye for beauty. And yet the hard heart looks ungratefully and says, God, I don't see the work of a God here. It's like standing at the bottom of Mount Rushmore and saying, designer, sculptor, I don't see the work of that here. Well, just because you don't see the work of it doesn't mean that you're right. The earth is very much a privileged planet. It's quite obvious that the earth has been finely tuned for life. And I do mean incredibly. I wish I had time. I don't even have time to go through all of this stuff. This is just one little sliver of evidence. It's been incredibly finely tuned for life. I want to get into all this other stuff, but I don't have time. All right. Stay on track, Wilson. Stay on track. All right. Let me give you some of those little fingerprints of Christ, of divinity, that God really did create this. Sometimes, in fact, the earth is called the Goldilocks planet. That's what astronomer, the astronomers use that term, by the way. It's kind of like spaghettification. That's an actual term in astronomy. You know, sometimes you hear a term, you're like, do, actual, do, do real people, like PhD people, use this? Yes. We have a Goldilocks planet. Why? Well, you remember the Goldilocks story, right? This porridge was too hot, this porridge was too cold, this one was just right. That's what's going on with us. Let's talk about where we are in the Milky Way. Here's kind of a picture of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is uh, a spiral galaxy. It's maybe a barred spiral galaxy, we're not real sure. At the very center of it lies a supermassive black hole. You would not want the solar system that we are in to be there. You would experience spaghettification. If you would like to hear, would you like to know what that word means? That is literally the term that they use to say if you are getting close to a black hole, once you cross the event horizon, which is to say once you get to the point where the black hole can now grip you, it pulls so hard on whatever end of you is that way that it would spaghettify you. And they call that, I'm not kidding, spaghettification. Now you can go home and be like, yeah, I, were, I learned an astronomy word, spaghettification. Like, no, no, you just like food. Just stop it. <laughs> but then when they look at me, that's what they think. You're just fat, Wilson. It's, it's okay. Like, all right, thank you. That's an actual word. So you wouldn't want to be there, obviously. It'd be a precarious place. We're about two-thirds of the way out to the outer edge of the Milky Way and smack dab between two of the spiral arms. And being placed between two of those spiral arms rather than in one is a very, very good thing for us as well, because if you're in one of those spiral arms, you have a really good chance of bumping into these large stellar objects we call stars. If you bump into the star rather than moving around it, you will be deeply impressed. Do you like that? Dad, that's all I've got is dad jokes, people, I'm sorry. You will be burned up, obviously. And yet, God knew that, and so he knew where to put the solar system. He knew what kind of sun to give us. Our situation within our solar system is so perfect, it defies the odds of chance. We are orbiting a just right sun that has just the right kind of size and mass and light output. It has just the right kind of orbital path. We're being stabilized by a just right moon, protected from comets and meteors by just right outer gas giant planets on a just right size planet that is a just right atmosphere with just right rotation. And there's a lot more just rights we can get into. Started out thinking it was a, a list of about 15 to 20. So far we've found 3,500 and this, the list keeps going. The longer science goes, the more improbable it becomes that somehow nothing created itself. Nothing created everything. No, there was a very intelligent designer who told us about it in his word, by the way. If you'd like to look that up later, it's Isaiah 45, 18. Here's what he said. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it as a waste place, 
but he formed it to be inhabited. So it should come as no surprise when we see that there's all of these things that are just right because that's what God told us. He did it that way on purpose, like our placement. Here's the next one. What about our son? Sorry, that was the scripture there running past here. What about our son? I don't know if you've thought about this. Now, we'll all probably try to look at the sun tomorrow, not with naked eyes. I have a friend in Ada who has blind spots in his eyes because he did that in 2017. Please don't do that. I brought a whole bunch of solar viewers. You just come up. We'll look through them. It'll be fine. But the sun is a very, very tough argument for the atheist. Why? Because it's so perfect. It's way, way too perfect to be there. Our sun is a very, and I mean very stable, very stable dwarf sun. It's a main sequence star. It's a GV2 yellow dwarf star, if you'd like all the classification. I know that's a mouthful, but essentially here's what it means. It is a very stable, very well-behaved thermonuclear reactor, we think. By the way, we still don't know whether that's really true or not. That's just the best guess. When I was a senior in college had a class that was for just senior science majors who were graduating. It was taught by one of the professors there. And the first day he comes in and says, okay, you guys are all graduating with degrees in biology or chemistry or biochemistry. And so I'm supposed to tell you all the things you need to know before you get out there into the great big marketplace of ideas. So here's the first thing I need you to know. All the stuff that we say we know in science, most of it we don't. It's just our best guess. And I can remember thinking back there, I've spent a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money learning this stuff, sir. And you're telling me it's our best guess? Yeah. Would you like to know why we believe that the sun is a thermonuclear reactor rather than, um, rather than working off what we call contraction, solar contraction? Well, because if it was working off solar contraction, it would be gone in a few hundred thousand years. It can't be that. Why do we think it's a thermonuclear reactor? Well, because it's so old. <laughs> that is literally, logically, that is called begging the question. That is a vicious circle. Oh, you think the sun is old, therefore it must be like this. So why do you think it's like this? Oh, because it's old. That's, that's circular. I've literally raised my hand and said, isn't that circular reasoning? Well, there's some things that were just, yeah, let's go on. That's the, be that's the best answer I can get from a PhD? Okay. Anyway. Let's just let's pretend it is, though. Sun contains approximately 99.8% of all the mass in the entire solar system, okay? That means the Earth, the Moon, all the planets, all together makes up 0.2% of the mass of the solar system. The, the Sun is massive compared to us. It is not massive compared to other stars. It is enormous compared to us. It has an enormous gravitational pull, which is, of course, what causes the orbits. The Earth, for example, is orbiting around the Sun right now. About 66,000 miles per hour. If you could put the Earth next to the Sun, this is about the size comparison. We are very small compared to that big ball of gas. By the way, if the or orbit of the Earth was one-eighth of an inch per mile of travel closer to the Sun, all the water would boil away and we would die. If it was one-eighth of an inch per mile of travel away from the Sun more, we would freeze the planet. That's how precise the orbit is of this Earth. One-eighth of an inch per mile of travel. One-eighth of an inch per mile of travel, and you're dead. And yet, the Lord knows that, and he holds it in his hand, and he says, you'll go here, and you'll go no further. Sounds alarming. By the way, just letting you know, your sun is burning up. Y'all realize that, right? I mean, you know, you can't make energy and just not lose something, right? I mean, there are these things called natural laws. As a conservative estimate, each second, the sun is converting about 600 million tons of hydrogen into 596 million tons of helium and giving off 4 million tons as energy. So it's losing 4 million tons of mass per second. That's a lot. Current estimates on the sun's rate of contraction range anywhere from two and a half feet per hour to as much as six feet per hour. It is getting smaller. That sounds alarming, doesn't it? 
The good thing is you'll notice it's pretty big. So even at that rate, it would still serve us fine for another few hundred thousand years. So nothing to be alarmed about yet, okay? But it is shrinking. Why do we care, though? Whoa, now we've got a good question for the evolution, the, uh, the atheist, the evolution, the Darwinist, if you will. Uh, if it's shrinking two and a half to six feet per hour, that's not a problem if the sun's 10,000 years old. That's a real problem if the sun's a couple hundred million years old because that means it had to be bigger. You run that clock back in about 300 million years ago, it's touching the earth. Okay, I don't think dinosaurs were evolving 300 million years ago with a sun touching the earth. Call me crazy. But actually, it doesn't take that. Obviously, you don't have to get the sun all the way to touching the earth. Remember, how far do we have to move? How far do we have to push the sun back into the habitable zone? One-eighth of an inch per mile of travel? Just a few million years will do it. We're going to kill everything. We're going to boil off all the water and kill everything on land. No, obviously, it's not millions of years old. If you believe the Bible's creation story as written, that everything was made by God roughly a few thousand years ago, six, seven, I'll even give you up to 10,000 years ago, it's really not a problem. You've got a sun that's about 6% bigger. No problem, right? But you go longer than that, you're in real trouble. By the way, the sun also gives off the right frequency of light. It doesn't just give off light. It gives off the right kind of light. It gives off the kind of light that your body can turn into vitamin D. By the way, that's why most of you here, all of you here, wow, we are a, yeah, all right. We'd, all of you here are pretty light skin colored, I've noticed. <laughs> you racist. Now, why? Why are you? Well, because most of you, you have descended from a group of people that came from a really tough place to live called the Caucasus Mountains. And the Caucasus Mountains were a long way north. And there was a weird thing that started happening. People that lived there that had dark skin did not make it through the winter. They got rickets. They could no longer go out and plow, and they died. Why? Well, the lighter your skin is, the easier it is for your body to make vitamin D. And they were able to live in this place that didn't get much incidental sun because they found out two things. Number one, it's skin that let them make vitamin D much longer into the winter. And number two, they found out, hey, these people that drink this weird cod liver oil stuff and eat fish seem to get better health. Vitamin D. Yeah. Now, we can say the opposite, though. If we get near the equator, what are we going to notice about humanity? There are some very dark-skinned folks. Why? Because that dark melanin protects you from the sun. Now, today you could wear sunscreen, but a thousand years ago, that was not an option on the table at the market. So what would happen if you had super light skin living on the equator a thousand years ago? Uh, you're either going to have to cover it up or you're going to risk dying very young from skin cancers. Yeah, it's a real thing. You need the sun's light for vitamin D. Everybody does. You need the kind of light that the sun puts out because not only vitamin D, the plants need to photosynthesize. And the kind of light that our sun gives off is perfect for plants to do photosynthesis, as if it was created by somebody that was really, really smart. I would love to talk more about this. There's about 50 other things that I have in my notes, and I'm not going to have time. Uh, by the way, uh, the sun, I told you it was really, really small compared to other stars. There are others like red giants. There's VY, Canis, and all the rest, right? Canis Majoris. Uh, we've got, we also have another one. Here's one. This is our sun compared to uh, Stevenson 218. Stevenson 218 is a super red giant. If, uh, if the earth was the size of a golf ball, our sun would be about 15 feet, okay? 15 feet diameter. It's pretty big. At that scale, Stevenson would take up most of North America. It's not going to work as our sun. You understand where I'm going with this? But it's okay because the Lord knew that. And so you have a star, the very middle of this thing, that's very gentle. It's very stable. It throws off very small. So even a big solar flare from our sun is, is tiny compared to... We, some of the hyper, the big red giants can throw off solar flares more than a million times larger than what our sun does. That would be hard on life on earth. Our sun is incredibly stable, and it is so because the Lord made it that way. 
Here's our moon. The current thinking of the moon is without our moon, we wouldn't be alive. The moon rotates around the earth about every 29 and a half days. So we get the word month from, from, from month. It's about 240,000 miles away or about 400 times closer than the sun and about one four hundredth the size, which is a really cool thing. It means in the sky, in the apparent size, they look the same size in the sky, which means the Lord can use them for signs and for seasons, which we'll talk about next session. Here's the crazy thing, though. We're losing our moon. Did you know that? Our moon has decided it doesn't like us, it's not going to play nice, and it's now moving away. It's in the process of moving away. It goes about an inch and a half to two inches a year. That's not very far. But here's the problem. The moon controls the tides. Remember, the moon has gravity as well, and the earth has gravity as well, and so the earth pulls against the moon, the moon pulls against the earth, and that's actually what causes the tides. The water is being pulled out away from the earth. It's literally expanding and that causes tides. So twice a day, we have high tides. Well, that's really not a problem for us, and it's not a problem if we're losing the, earth, the moon at an inch and a half or two inches a year on a biblical creation scale. Big deal. But if you rewind that a few hundred million years, you're going to have real problems. We have something we call the inverse square law. You, you guys probably had to learn Newton's law of gravity, F of G equals M1, M2 over R squared. You probably had to learn that when you were in high school, right? You, you do all that, and you got the high school kids that are like, my brain hurts, right? And it's probably been a day or two since you've had to use it. Very relevant for life, I know. You use it all the time, don't you? Like the Pythagorean theorem, always using that thing. <clears throat> no. Why is that a big deal? Because that means we have what's called an inverse square law. If we move the moon one-third of the way back to the earth... We take a third, we flip it over, we square that, we have nine. So now we have nine times larger tides. You're not going to get land animals developing a few hundred million years ago when you're drowning them twice a day. Okay? By the way, at their time scales, the moon comes back to touching the earth in less than a billion years. That's what happened to the tall dinosaurs. They got mooned to death. I know, I stole it, but it works. Right? No, the, the moon was created in a just right way because it's holding us. By the way, it is holding us in our, or, in our, um, our axial alignment. That's why we have, uh, you know, summer and winter, fall and spring. I asked some kids one time. In, in my class, by the way, they learned this from their fourth or fifth grade science teacher, so I had to go over and have a talk with a science teacher like, listen, sister, I really love you and everything, but uh, this is not right. So the kids tell me, well, the reason that we have, I asked, now, why do we have winter? Because I'm trying to get into the axial tilt. And they're like, oh, we have winter because the earth is farther away from the sun. Like, now, how does that work? Because, you know, there's a southern hemisphere too. When we're having winter, they're having summer. This is real trouble, right? No, we have seasons because of the tilt of the earth. And that's a good thing. It's very, very um, predictable. That's a really good thing. Isn't it a good thing to know that um, winter is going to be coming around the corner? I don't know. It's western Kansas. You can have summer, spring, fall, winter in two days. But, you know, it's nice to have predictable seasons. We have that because of our moon. If we didn't have the moon, what would happen is the earth would start wobbling in its tilt. You know, so for a few days, you've got the polar ice caps, you know, facing the sun. And then for a few days, you have them back the other way. Or maybe you get locked into syncope, which means now one side of the planet gets so hot you can't have life. The other side freezes like Mercury. Not good. No, instead we have a moon, a very big moon as far as moons go, by the way. And it stabilizes us as if it were designed to do just that. I got I to gotta move. All right, I, I'm not going to get into all that. Let me tell you this. Let's just do this. I'll go through four or five really good evidences that you have in your earth, and then I'll get to the end because I'm waxing way too long. The earth has just the right composition. It has just the right size. I don't know if you thought about this or not. The atmosphere you have is because of the size of the earth. The reason that you have oxygen in, our, in your atmosphere is because we have just the right size of the earth. It's gravity that holds the oxygen on. If we were smaller, something like mercury, you can't hold the, you don't have enough gravity to hold on to your atmosphere. But you do. You have a just right atmosphere as well. 
about 78% of your atmosphere is actually nitrogen, which is inert, means it doesn't combust. It doesn't do other stuff, right? We call it a noble gas. Why do we call it a noble gas? Because it doesn't react, right? Like a nobleman, you slap them in the face. They don't punch the girl in the chin, right? Madam, now I take my leave. Well, same thing with nitrogen. Nitrogen does not just blow up and react. It's inert. It's noble, which is really, really good because 20% of your atmosphere is oxygen. If instead of nitrogen, you had hydrogen in your atmosphere at 78%, the first fire somebody made would also have been the last. You understand? That whole atmosphere is going up. But no, the Lord knew that. And so he made the earth just the right size, as if he really did make it to be inhabited. Not only does it have the right size for your atmosphere, but it has the right kind of core. You have a core that's spinning liquid iron. That's a ferrous metal. It's magnetic, which means you have a big magnetosphere, magnetosphere around the earth, which is really, really good because sometimes you have solar flares, right? You have other things coming from the sun than just light. And what happens? Well, it hits the the magnetic cage, if you will, that's around the earth. And we get something that we call the aurora borealis, the northern lights. It's gorgeous, beautiful. Sometimes you get a really good solar flare. You can see the northern lights even down as far as maybe here. We've had a couple times since I've been alive where supposedly at least you could see it in Nebraska and partially parts of northern Canada. We've never been low enough that I've ever got to see them. But that's because of the magnet that you have. You have a spinning liquid core of iron that's creating that. If you had a different kind of core, you couldn't have that you'd just be wiped out the first solar flare there was. Has just the right level of CO2 in the atmosphere. I love asking people how much CO2 is in the atmosphere because it's kind of the same thing as the, the arc. I don't know, but it's too much. How much? I'm not kidding. People who have degrees in this, people who are like environmental scientists, you'll ask them, how much CO2 in the atmosphere? I don't know, 20%? 30%? No. One-third of 1%. What happens if you double that, triple that? Well, you're going to notice a really cool thing. You're going to make really big, sweet fruits faster. There is no fertilizer on earth that works like CO2. There's not. Every plant on earth loves CO2. That's what they make their energy out of. Remember photosynthesis? They're making sugar out of that CO2. They're taking that CO2, they're breaking off the carbon, they're getting off rid of the oxygen, they're making C6H12O6 glucose that I can put in my coffee. Hallelujah, glory. Right? What happens if you double the CO2? You're not... Water vapor heats up the earth much, much more efficiently and effectively than CO2. Right after World War II, which, by the way, we put more CO2 into the atmosphere as a humanity during World War II than has ever been seen in the history of the earth. Do you know what happened to the global temperatures for the next five years after World War II? They dropped. They dropped so much, in fact, that we were running articles in Time and Newsweek saying, get ready, the Earth's going to freeze. Are you ready for the big freeze? Global cooling's coming to kill us all. And then they changed their tune about 20 or so years later, and then they changed back, and now it's just like, yeah, we can't keep track of it. It's just climate change. Okay. Well, you have just the right amount. Your oxygen level is just right. 19, 20% oxygen, that's perfect. You get too much oxygen, you'll actually kill people. We did this to divers, by the way, kind of accidentally. We first discovered that oxygen was what we were breathing in that was making the atmosphere conducive for life. And so we thought, hey, we could, we could take a diving bell, take this big metal cage, we'll put glass around it, we'll put it on the bottom of the ocean, we'll fill that up with oxygen, we can have divers go down there and they can just... They, they don't have to wear scuba suits, nothing. They can just go down there, and they can do their work and look for pearls all day. This sounds like a great idea. We stick divers in it. We pump 100% pure oxygen to them. We dramatically increase the amount of free radicals in their brain, and we kill them within about three or four hours. Not good. And so we finally realized, oh, wait, it's not all oxygen. It's 20% oxygen. We need some other stuff in there, too. Too much oxygen's bad. You get over 30%, roughly 35%. It's going to be really hard to put fires out now. But if you had about 30%, I will tell you this, you, could, you wouldn't need a car. Run wherever you want to. You would never get tired. You could not incur an oxygen debt in your muscles. Just take off running, man. It would be the only time I could be an endurance athlete. I am excited about that. Anyway, 
Let me just, I'm going to have to skip over. There's a lot more stuff I'd love to go over. I don't have time. Let me skip over this. I want to end with this. I want to show you something. This is my favorite astronomical thing. This is called, sometimes called the darling of astronomy. This is the Whirlpool Galaxy. Just off the Big Dipper, if you can find the Big Dipper, you could find, theoretically, where the Whirlpool Galaxy is. It sits face on, so you can actually see the whole structure. It's gorgeous. It's the darling. It's uh, 31 million light years away, in case you're not aware. A light year is about 5.88 trillion miles. That's a long way. It's about 31 light years away, but it sits face on to the Earth. It's 60,000 light years across. You can see why it's the darling. It is overpoweringly beautiful. So in an effort to uncover the mystery of how the universe began and how the galaxies were formed, NASA scientists decided, you know what we should do? We should take the wide-field planetary camera on the Hubble Space Telescope, and we should point it at the core of this galaxy, and we should take a long, at least three-day-long exposure and see what's actually in that core. And so they did just that. They focused that eight-foot-wide primary mirror telescope that makes me so jealous on the galactic core of the M51 galaxy. And this is the image that they got. I got this right off of NASA's website. There it is. What could it have been that formed the universe? What could it possibly have been that formed those galaxies? That image is 1,100 light years across. As far as I know, that's the largest cross in existence. Now, the truth of the matter is, friend, all of God's creation is screaming in testimony to him. And on that great day of judgment, no one, and I do mean no one, will be able to say, God, you just didn't give me enough evidence. Let me close with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech or language. There are no words where their voice is not heard. God's creation is crying out in testimony to him. The question is, friend, do you have ears to hear and eyes to see that you might see it? Let's pray. Lord, let us listen to the voice of your creation that continually cries out to us night after night. Lord, if there's anyone here whose heart has not been made alive yet with Christ, I pray that you would soften it, that you would draw them to yourself. God, take out that hard, cold, stony heart. Give them a heart of flesh. Give them the gift of faith. Bring them to your Son for their good, Lord, and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's, uh, can we, can I, how do we do this? Can we take a little break and then... Uh...